Hello, this is Adam Huss. I'm coming to you from under the harvest moon in the former territory of the people who separated the Sokokoi of the Misakoi Abenaki, where I'm now working harvest with the crew at La Garagista in what many seem to think is one of the worst vintages in a very long time in terms of weather. You may have noticed that I didn't welcome you to the Organic Wine Podcast. That's because I'm changing the name. It's a simple change, but I think it better reflects what you can expect when you tune in. I'm just adding the word beyond to the name so that it's now the Beyond Organic Wine Podcast. Welcome. Nothing else is changing. You can still go to OrganicWinePodcast.com and Instagram at OrganicWinePodcast, but you can also now go to beyondorganicwine.com. They both take you to the same place. There's some inside wine lingo to the name change. I've heard it used and used it myself when talking to customers and wine drinkers as a shorthand way of letting them know that the viticulture behind my wine or another wine is really thoughtful, ecological, biodynamic, regenerative, etc. We just say it's beyond organic as a way of evoking this because, well, because what is actually beyond the limits of just organic is immense. It can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, and the average wine drinker isn't interested in mycorrhizal fungi or rotational grazing, sadly. I love the word beyond. I love the scene in the movie Click, where Adam Sandler goes to the Bed Bath and Beyond store and discovers an entrance to the Beyond section, which is, of course, a magical and metaphysical realm that changes his life. With this name change, I'm hoping to do the same thing, go through that organic portal and continue this journey of discovery of the wild and mysterious realm that is beyond. I've become convinced that many of our biggest problems are systemic, culturally rooted, and we cannot talk about alternatives without questioning the frameworks we use to give meaning to our lives. How can we talk about rewilding wine, for example, while using a language structure that came from the Romans and their cultural descendants who conquered and destroyed every wild and indigenous culture they encountered. I think we may need to relearn wild language to rewild our ideas. Even the word wild can have problematic connotations and may not convey the kind of nature-integrated thinking that I'm trying to talk about. And beyond just introducing you to the new name, I wanted to use this intro to ask the big question lurking behind the Beyond Organic Wine podcast. What actually is this vision of wine that I'm talking about? I mean, why the heck am I doing this? Why do I care about these things? Answering this question is part of why I came to Vermont. I've been working harvest for three weeks with the crew of La Garagista. Should you get a chance to come to Vermont, you could not be luckier than to meet this crew. Maybe coven is a better word, who make up the team here at La Garagista. Deirdre and Caleb, Camila of La Montanuela, and Anna of Lilith Wines. I've had the honor to work alongside and learn from these lovely folks, both in the vineyard and winery, and I can't say enough here to do justice to the amazing work that they are doing. Their commitment to an ecological approach to growing grapes and making wine is beautiful, inspiring, and delicious. If you haven't listened to my previous interview with Deirdre Heakin, it's pretty special, so check it out. But also her wines and the wines of Lilith and La Montanuela are transformative. The wines are informed by deep passion and a seemingly preternatural ability to intuit what kinds of wines 
these unique grapes in these unique conditions want to become, all without any inputs other than, you know, cosmic energy and probably a little magic. So I feel extremely grateful and fortunate to be here despite this terrible vintage. And as heartbreaking as this vintage has been for the winemakers here, it has been an incredible learning opportunity. These vines have been put through a stress test like none other, and I've been amazed to see how well some of them have fared despite everything. Coming from a California context, it has blown me away to see what these vines have produced, how good some of the fruit looks, and how healthy some of the vines look. In the first two weeks of my stay here, it rained inches on multiple days. And we harvested on the days that it didn't rain. <laughs> this has been the entire summer here with flooding and extremely wet conditions. The vineyards have been like swamps, and I've walked among vines growing and standing water in many spots. And it bears repeating that these vines were traumatized by an extremely warm April that caused a lot of shoot growth, followed by a freeze event in May that killed much of that new growth. Vinifera under these same conditions would not only not have fruit, it would literally be dead on the ground, decaying. <laughs> While there have been decreases in productivity here and some significant loss for growers, I've personally picked thousands of pounds of fruit in multiple vineyards. Vineyard site and vine health play a big role, and it seems to be all about the basics. Slope, drainage, soil health, aspect, airflow, and farming. But some vines have done well across multiple sites. The ones that have stood out to me, and this is just a short list, are Brianna, a white grape, Petit Pearl, a red, and the Frontenacs, Frontenac Noir, Gris, and Blanc. Some other surprises were Swenson White and Louise Swenson, both white grapes. All of these have produced only slightly less amounts with healthy canopies and a lot of really good-looking fruit using only organic and biodynamic sprays. Can you imagine growing these vines in a Mediterranean context? They'd be like super vines, sent by their parents from the planet Krypton to live among fragile mortals. If you were in a drier climate than Vermont, pretty much any hybrid grape would do well for you. But I also, I'll throw La Crescent out there as something that I think tastes amazing and makes amazing wine. As a comparison, for example, I sprayed my Syrah in Los Angeles more frequently, had nowhere near as much rain, moisture, and humidity as these grapes, and definitely no freezing temps after bread bud break, and I still lost my entire crop. The more I observe, the more I realize there is really no comparison. The question isn't why hybrids, but why the hell vinifera? I've loved every minute of my time here in Vermont, but it, I especially loved the discussions that we've had while bottling or picking grapes. While Deirdre and I bottled her 2023 Grace and Favor pet nut, listening to music and working quietly, I asked her, do you like the term natural wine? She said she did, but acknowledged it had its limits. Then she asked me what I thought. I admitted it bothered me a bit because I saw wine as a product of human culture and that it couldn't exist no matter how we made it without many human cultural interventions. I assured her that I didn't mean to denigrate wine by saying this, but on the contrary, wanted to elevate it to a kind of art form. I just thought that the term natural was disingenuous. She agreed, but offered the insight that perhaps the French term the nature from which natural wine derives might embody some subtle differences that don't convey when translated as natural wine. 
As I thought about this, I wondered if the French term might lean more towards a sense of nature culture, wine that grows from a culture centered around nature. The root of cult and culture is to cultivate, to grow, but also to worship. If we worship nature in the way we cultivate wine, perhaps that is the essence of natural wine. To worship is to show reverence and adoration, often to a deity, and to honor with rites. Isn't this the way to practice the best viticulture? Aren't the soil and the sun and the rain and the seasons the source of us, our creators, so to speak? Don't the fruits of our cultivation transmute into our bodies and the strength and awareness that gives us life? When we create and spray biodynamic prep or prepare and spread compost, aren't these rites that honor the land and the life force that brings forth our wine? I want to make wine within a nature culture, to make wine that shows reverence and adoration for the natural world. And these thoughts of nature culture brought me back to the, that question of why am I doing this? When I started this podcast, organic was important to me and still is because I didn't want to harm the earth in the pursuit of making wine or anything else for that matter. Organic for me meant do no harm. It still does mean this for the most part, but it doesn't challenge the culture out of which my idea of wine grew. Organic leaves intact the entire colonial and industrial model of winemaking. It allows us to swap out the sprays while changing nothing of substance. The problem with organic, if I can sum it up, is that you can farm a vineyard or orchard organically, even though you cleared old growth forest in order to plant it there. And what is my problem with the colonial industrial culture that I live in? I mean, what is the problem with clear-cutting ancient forests to make way for our human needs and desires? I guess the answer for me is that I've come to believe ancient forests are one of our greatest needs and that we should align our desires with a way of life that preserves and even increases our ability to have a way of life. I've come to see the natural world as a, a literal extension of myself and my well-being, and having seen this, I can't unsee the deep connections everywhere. This vision makes me want to know more, but it also exposes the shortcomings and unsustainability of our dominant culture. Everything in our lives comes from the earth. Our homes and everything in them, our cars, the roads we drive on, our clothes and shoes, our phones, our food, and our wine. We've created a system, though, in which the source materials for most of these things are never replenished. We take from somewhere, and we sell it somewhere else. We take until that somewhere has no more to give, and then we start to take from somewhere else. Even if we take in a nice way, which seldom happens, but even if we do take in a nice way, there's still the problem of finiteness. When we take without giving back, we create a vacuum in the land and an emptiness in ourselves. I think I understand what motivates the taking. I mean, of course, there are the bad things, like ignorance and greed and vanity. But even behind those, if we can be compassionate with ourselves for a moment, there are the very understandable needs and fears of being a human animal in a wild world. Behind the thirst for power, control, and profit is the need for safety and security and a desire for comfort and pleasure rather than pain and suffering. So strong is this motivation that we let other people and creatures experience insecurity, pain, and suffering as long as we don't have to see it, if that means that we and our children don't have to experience these things. But 
we are beginning to reach the end of taking. We are beginning to reach a point where this system of taking and not giving back has created a poisonous world, an unstable world, an insecure and unsafe world. The machine we built in our desperation for security is eroding the possibility of that security. We've realized we can't outrun death. While all of this might have been inevitable in the trajectory of human development, our future isn't inevitable. Throughout history, humans have joined together in communities to build large projects that were, by one understanding, completely impractical. Think of the Teatro Antico in Taormina, Sicily, or the Mayan pyramids, or Notre Dame, or Stonehenge, or Angkor Wat. Each of these places, whether they are monuments to God or God's storytelling and entertainment, love or mystery, all tell a similar story. That story is that we humans are not bound by what is expedient, convenient, practical, frugal, comfortable, or even necessary. We can do things for their beauty. We can build monuments that can only be understood by the thrill they bring to the eye, the way they quicken our heartbeat. We can embark on difficult and dangerous journeys because we know that we must feed some part of ourselves that food cannot satisfy. We can invest our energy and resources into the aesthetic side of life, knowing that the return we get is a reason to live. A luxury is an unnecessary thing that we don't need. I don't think wine fits this definition. Wine at its best reminds us that life is about more than survival. Wine can be an unnecessary creation that we can't live without. When I think of wine this way, I feel a profound responsibility. I want to ask how to make wine be the greatest aesthetic expression it can be. As I've pursued this question via this podcast over the past four years, I've learned a lot about the harm we've done to the world, as well as the ways that we can repair that damage. To not share that feels irresponsible. I started these interviews because I wanted to learn more about wine, but I'm realizing the most important thing I've learned is how to listen better. I think listening is a key to a healthy community. I want to encourage a community of people who see that our community can't be limited to just humans. I want to ask how to build viticultures that are not based on extraction, but based on showing reverence and adoration for the natural world and all the lives with which we share it. Look, I know this is a small planet in a very large universe, and my life isn't even a blip in the immense scale of time. I can use this as an excuse to be cynical and not care about anything other than my own whims. Do I really think I can make the world a better place? And what would better even look like? And would it even matter if I did? I'll admit that these are powerful questions. Maybe nothing I do matters, but I personally prefer to live in a beautiful world, a just world, a world of health and wonder. And I know that maybe I can't change human nature or the world, but I can change myself and the world that I touch. I know that I can listen better and empathize better and farm better, and that will make my wine more delicious. And it may not matter in the grand scheme, but I'd like to drink more delicious wine while I'm visiting this magical wine forest. As grandiose as it may sound, the why that forms the basis of the Beyond Organic Wine podcast is that I want to learn how to build a Notre Dame or Teatro Antico of wine. I want to ask what our viticultures could be when built from a spirit of worship rather than fear of this wild world. I want to ask how to build a system and a community from the ground up 
whose priorities are the things that make life worth living, despite our fears and our inevitable passing. That's what's beyond organic wine for me. And now, picture yourself in a vineyard that slopes west, looking across Lake Champlain as the sun sinks over the Adirondack Mountains. You're picking grapes with the crew of La Garagista. The pace of the work is relaxed, steady, timeless. We're not worried about this process of making wine, of helping nature to make wine, because we haven't been taught to fear. There isn't a right or a wrong way to do this, so we can't screw it up. We can only listen, observe, learn, and enjoy. We're recording. Getting ready for the close-up. <laughs> awesome. All right, we're picking Frontenac Gris in Virginia. Vermont with uh, Camila Carrillo <laughs> and Anna Travers <laughs> and several other people. Can you say your name? Caleb. <laughs> um, can you guys describe this vineyard? as what it looks like? Well, it is definitely in its wild and thriving phase with lots of under vine growth. I mean, it's not even under vine, it's up through the vine it's through growth. The vine. It's actually, yeah, there. it's part of the vine. Yeah. Um, lots of daisy fleabane, uh, really beautiful, small daisy-like flowers, uh, some grass, purple vetch, or at least the skeleton remains of it. Um, and we are in the Frontenac Gris. And this is a section, a couple rows that were um, not pruned. So there's a lot of fruit to pick through. I was actually gonna ask you if this was something that we pruned last year or not. And we, I was getting the feeling that we did not. No, I mean, we did prune, I think the first three or four rows. Right, okay. Um, but yeah, due to timing, and also I think when we were in here, it was like that time in May where the frost hit, so... Oh, and that's when we realized maybe it's better to leave some of it... Yeah. ...unpruned. If, while we were still afraid of, like, some lower... Some of the loss. ...temperatures, yeah, coming through. Yeah. After that. And this is double cordon? Yes. Otherwise, I mean, if it was, like... Be behind the not pruning, it's, it's the, its basic structure is double cordon. Yes, also known as forearm niffin. Forearm niffin. Named after the man himself, I guess. Mr. Niffin. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Niffin. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, we uh, we do this kind of pruning to renew the wood because a lot of the diseases that we deal with uh, overwinter, so it's good to get as much as that old wood out of the vineyard. But you didn't prune this. No, 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 we didn't prune this, these three or four rows, but we did the... Oh, you're saying yeah, yeah. you're saying you do cane pruning instead of spur pruning. Yes, yes, because yes, yes, yes. for that reason. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, this vineyard uh, has been uh, taken care of really well by Deirdre and Company for long enough that it's in, in really good shape that it you know can afford to be unpruned in certain sections if need be. And when you say cared for, can you describe the spray program? 
Um, yeah, so we, uh, and I learned this from Deirdre, so it's uh, a biodynamic practice. So we do, like the base of our sprays is uh, stinging nettle tea, and we also add some horsetail in the beginning of the growing season when it's kind of humid and wet. Uh, and we add uh, homeopathic doses. <laughs> this is from Deirdre yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. of sulfur and copper. Um, yeah. And then we also, I mean, water. Uh, and once July hits, when Japanese beetles are here, we add a little bit of cowling clay to the mix, um, which helps also keep things dry, um, which gotcha. is good for what we just went through. <laughs> and it helps everything stick to the leaves more too, right? That's part yes. of it. So that yeah. everything, even if it does like really get everything is really able to be absorbed even um, if even if it gets rained on a little bit like it's got a little more adhesiveness correct yeah well and also the cow and clay what's great about it is after it rains you can see it working its magic because then like the leaves are already starting to dry off um so it keeps things you know, right uh yeah and um, um how many how often do you spray uh well we usually, we alternate between uh, copper and sulfur and it's usually anywhere from like once or to twice a week. It kind of depends on how much rain you get because, you know, you do want to get in there with a spray right after it rains, if possible. Uh, oh. This season was, you know, particular because there <laughs> weren't many windows. Oh, because, yeah, Deirdre basically said four sprays of that involved a dose of either copper or sulfur, so eight total once a week. Yeah, I, I, well, see, I'll, I lose count. Okay, got I it. I feel like, yeah, it's like every other week, right? She said once a week. Once a week. Or oh, well, we, we can ask her. The treatments, like, alternate. Yes, like. yes. So it's like yes, every other yeah, week yeah, right, right. the same one. Yes, yeah. And, But it's, yeah. I mean, honestly, um, that's less than I had to spray my vines in Los Angeles this year. If it was if it was eight sprays, which is what she told me. Mm. Um and I lost my whole crop. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I sprayed How much did you have far to more. Uh, I think I sprayed like 14 times. Oh, wow. Um, we, you know, maybe it's longer growing season as part of it. But, I mean, just the number of sprays was a lot relative to this. And yours, you know, there's tons of fruit here. Yeah. And I should say, even though it looks like the canopy everywhere has issues, the fruit everywhere there is fruit everywhere yeah. like every vine every variety has fruit um tasting can, great <laughs> tasting great can you describe this vintage oh the the motto for this vintage has been we'll see how it goes uh <laughs> it's been marked with a lot of unpredictability and a lot of firsts um so it's been interesting um <laughs> But I mean, every it's a true. I think this vintage is a true testament of what good farming um, can do. One and then two, also what hybrid grapes are really capable of doing, even amidst the craziest, like some of the craziest weather that we and have seen uh, here in Vermont. Yeah, I mean. I know that it's maybe it's a little too judgmental to say it's the worst vintage you've had because that could imply like that the wine will be bad, but it 
In as terms, far as weather goes. As far as weather goes, <laughs> it's the worst vintage you've had. Probably one of the worst growing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been it's been rough. I mean, I've like being able to work in these vineyards and Lagardus's vines. Like, I definitely feel a lot of hope for like the work that they've done and how resilient these vines are. Because my little vineyard suffered greatly, and uh, I definitely felt. <laughs> very pessimistic at the beginning of the season uh but yeah just being here now and just tasting the juice that we brought in so far everything's tasting great looking great and it's nice to see so much fruit in well here in the frontenac gris yeah it's just like dripping from the vines (laughs) yeah i mean so well let's go to can you introduce your your wine my sure your your brand sure so uh i'm anna again and my personal label is lilith wines um so it's kind of it's an imprint of lagaragista so we uh myself uh cammy and another co-worker of ours willa dealey who's disciple cider we all have our own personal projects that kind of fall under the umbrella of la garagista and i started venturing off um you know full time into wine in 2021 and yeah i've been fortunate enough to work with deirdre and have the opportunity to make some of my own wine while i help her make hers what what kind of wine what kind of you, wine i mean a bunch making? of uh i the one wine that i have put a label on so far and really brought out into the world is uh called virago which is a pet nat uh, it's a blend of 75 percent oh, lacrescent and 25 percent brianna and the Brianna that's in there is a bookend of Harvest. So it is the very first pick of 2022 mm. and the very last pick of 2022. And the Brianna also sat on La Crescent skins uh, for a total of two weeks before I blended them together. But mm. otherwise, everything else that I have made so far um, is still in process. But I never know exactly what kind of fruit I'm going to be able to work with. For the vintage it's mostly what do we have an abundance of what are you know we potentially able to buy from other people um and so a lot of so far it has been you know very small experiments and yeah trying new things so i haven't necessarily made the same thing twice <laughs> so <laughs> uh i have uh, some other things that uh I'm still holding on to before releasing, which might be ready soon. Um, call and it's a series of four different wines mm. made with but with two different grapes, uh, Marquette and Frontenac Noir. And this is the first time I ever had any of my own fruit to work with, so I just wanted to kind of play around and see what I was able to do and maximize those two things. So I did as many combinations as I could. Um, so I have a still Marquette, sparkling Marquette, um, and a co-fermentation of the Marquette and Frontenac Noir, and then the Marquette on 
Frontenac Noir skins. And what those all come out to is as above, so below, as within, so without. Mm. Um, and so I was able to get some Verona and Petite Pearl from a vineyard that Cami works with down in Perkinsville, Vermont. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah, had a lot of fruit from that we harvested from there. And as a little thank you for doing her wedding photography, she she's carving out some of that for me. So Amazing. I'll work with that this year. <laughs> um, what's the name Lilith all about? I have a fondness uh, because I am a huge fan of sirens. Yeah. And I feel like she's kind of like the mother of sirens and there's a lot of... Mother of demons. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's like a lot of similarities just in this like it's feminine energy that has been put in a negative light in a way. Traditionally, historically. And I mean it sounds like, you know, obviously the idea of reclaiming that and owning that and, you know... making that not a negative thing is yeah is a big part of the embrace of Lilith which I love um yeah I mean that but, is just, that's essentially essentially <laughs> it but like more like who who is Lilith like how did I why did I yeah, how did yeah. I uh so what originally piqued my interest is I also am an astrologer and there's a placement in astrology called Black Moon Lilith and it's all about I mean it like I mean you think of the story of Lilith who is exactly like you said you know mother of demons and kind of this like wrongfully uh uh vilified vilified yeah Yeah. that's the right word um for basically just like standing up for herself uh this astrology placement is supposed to represent kind of like those taboo um or dark feminine characteristics that you may not readily accept about yourself um or that are kind of maybe shunned by society or like deemed as like oh don't don't do like xyz because right. that you know for whatever reason and it's kind of how can you re again reclaim that as your own and uh do it with you know confidence and kind of integrate that as a piece of your personality rather than like shying away from it Mm. um and that's just something i have i yeah the whole story of lilith too just something that really is interesting to me um i feel like it resonates especially i was asked the question one time you know what how does it feel to be making wine and starting to make wine in a region that is so non-traditional and matriarchal and I've never I've kind of I was like wow that really is making me stop and think a lot because I've just kind of been here like all right I want to do this and these are the people doing it around me but without necessarily thinking of it in that context so and I feel like that Ooh, I like that yeah Oh, that's great. All right, I'm going to move down the row here. Keep going. I'll be back. Can you uh, introduce Lamont and Uh Yes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it is my label. 
uh, which I started in 2018. So the what was same, your name again? Oh, <laughs> Camila Carrillo. Um, <laughs> you are welcome to call me Cami or Camilla. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I started uh, that label, my personal label in 2018. Or I guess 2019, but I started making my own wines in 2018, uh, the first year in harvest that I worked here at La Gargista. Um, and I released my first cuvee in 2019. And uh, that was really just uh, came with a lot of encouragement and support from Deirdre and Caleb uh, because I wasn't really sure I wanted to make wine at that time. Uh, and yeah, I've been making my own cuvées ever since and have been growing slowly but surely. Um, and La Montañuela is, uh, it was the name of my grandfather's farm, um, which he had outside of uh, the capital of Venezuela, Caracas. Um, and when he passed away in 2019, I was, you know, trying to figure out what to name my label and just wanted to find some way to honor him since he was always so supportive and excited about what I was doing. Uh, so, per my mom's suggestion, I decided to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why did you get into wine? Um, well, it, it all began when I was a senior in high school. And uh, at that time I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I had been looking into college. I was like kind of thinking about doing like design and merchandising, but I just like wasn't really sure. And the idea of like spending so much money trying to figure it out seemed wrong to me. Um, I love traveling and I kind of wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I didn't end up applying to any colleges. Uh, but during my senior year, I was dating someone whose parents were really into wine and food. And so dinners were just like so amazing uh, because we would have great food and then great wine. And uh, I think what attracted me really about wine was just not only the like imbibing of it, but just learning about where all these wines came from and the ways that they were made and grown. Uh, and I've always loved um, working with nature, like gardening or just being in the woods, kind of hanging around, climbing trees. Uh, so the idea of working in agriculture or something like that was also appealing to me. Um, and I just felt like the more I worked towards, or worked in wine, I felt like I was uh, making my way to do something exactly like that. And you had some, uh, you did some staging around the world as well. Yes. Uh, so instead of college, you took the like the uh, what is that like apprenticeship route? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I did that. Uh, it started in 2015. Was my first harvest internship, and I um, did my last internship in the fall of 2017. I started in California and ended in Italy. Um, and I, well, what I thought was kind of sweet about ending my, like having my last stage in Italy was that in 2011, uh, you know, a year after I graduated high school, I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. I ended up going to Italy and I did this, uh, woofing program in Tuscany. And this was a, a farm that made everything and made wine. And I just remember being so in love with what they were doing that I wanted to do the same. And so it was a really nice way to 
kind of end that, um, what do you call it, cycle, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, so thank goodness <laughs> for traveling. And uh, honestly, apprenticeship is the way to go because I learned so much more than I did doing WSET. <laughs> how, how many different uh, wineries did you work at? Um, so I worked at uh, one in California, one in Argentina, one in uh, Washington State, Yakima Valley, uh, Basket Range outside the Adelaide Hills in um, Australia. Australia, and then the last place was in Italy uh, at La Stopa. Um, so, All very different, I imagine. Yes. In terms of style as well as you know, uh, the terroir like, and everything and, else. Yeah, and production. Right. Uh, yeah, which... Size and... Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, Did, now, you're doing this mm -hmm. here. This is a special and unique kind of production as well. Yes. Um, what, uh, what, like, were, do you have anything that compares to this? Um, I would say in that... The, in that apprenticeship, I mean, of course. Yeah. yeah before you. I think that the... I mean, honestly, it was my last two internships that I felt like were the closest to this. So uh, I worked for Gentlefolk Wines in Basket Range. Oh, okay. um, and that was like the first real, like small, natural wine uh, winery that I'd worked for. And that was actually like the first time that I was involved in the vines, like before harvest during harvest and after harvest. Um, all the other wineries, we were kind of removed from the vines. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just really cool to see wine made in the most, like in the simplest way, not to say that, you know, the work wasn't hard, but the winemaking was pretty simple. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also the community, uh, the community in the basket range, I felt like, you know, it was very similar to here. Everyone's really tight, and um, there are a lot of people who kind of work together, inspire each other, collaborate, uh, who do things differently, but are like, you know, working in harmony with each other. Uh, and then La Stopa was the other place that, the last, my last internship that, um, well, I think, you know, working at like Argista, there's this Italian element to it. So I felt like that was a, yeah. there was definitely a link um, and, you know, just like most of the internships I did, I, I feel like lunch and meals were like a really big thing, a big part of the harvest experience and like gathering at the table, cooking together and having like a long lunch. Um, and that's how it was, you know, in Australia and in Italy. Uh, we just we just got done with a lovely long lunch. Yes, a lovely yeah, long <laughs> lovely with some wine and uh, great company. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like those last two internships were the most similar to here, even yeah. though they were like thousands of miles away. <laughs> um, did you ever work with hybrids before here? Uh, ish. Uh, so. Uh, in 2012, I worked at a winery in the tasting room outside of the capital, Vermont. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so just right outside. The winery was called Fresh Tracks, um, and they were not a natural winery, uh, but they made wine with hybrids. And okay. um, that was like, 
the closest I could get in Vermont to like having a, a winery experience. Okay. Uh, and so at that time, you know, I definitely recognized that there was a lot of potential in Vermont and that there, I, I knew that this was like a pretty young industry at that time, but I knew that, uh, you know, I think it, I, I think I felt like it was going in the right, you know, trajectory. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the hybrids that we work with here, is <laughs> what make, I'm trying to say. <laughs> you make wine with only hybrids, right? I do. <laughs> I do. Why hybrids? <laughs> well, Adam, <laughs> um, <laughs> to put it simply, uh, <laughs> I live in Vermont and that's what we have here. And, uh, I think I also, given where I started in Wine in Vermont and where I am now, um, I feel very passionate and dedicated to working with these varieties and making wines with these varieties and also showing the world what amazing wines we can make here. Um, and also the fact that we can farm this, you know, organically and biodynamically. Uh, and still get grapes. And still get grapes. In the worst vintage in a long yeah. time. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I think, you know, I think we're doing something right. <laughs> oh, could you introduce yourself? <laughs> yes, I'm Deirdre. <laughs> I'm Deirdre Heakin. Yeah. Oh, so um, first of all, I want to apologize for slowing everybody down in their picking. Um, I wanted to I, talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah, let me know. <laughs> um, yeah, Cami is totally incapable of talking and using her hands. I do not multitask. <laughs> oh, we're, uh, that's about to that happen to me right now, too. <laughs> um, what I would love to ask you... Um, I mean, so many things, but, you know, I've been here almost three weeks now, learned a lot, but what do you hope that I take away? <laughs> Ooh, that's a good question. You, ask, you always ask good questions. <laughs> um, what do I hope you take away? I hope you take away uh, something of what this place is, you know, what it uh, wants to say in terms of its landscape and the people who you know have been you've been living and working with and the kinds of wines that we're making and the stories that these wines want to say about this place um, that these what these varieties that we grow here have to say about this place and certainly what the kind of farming that we're doing has to say all those things in concert together what they have to say about what it means to be living and working and making wine in a place like Vermont. Mm. Yeah. I will, I, I have to be complimentary. I, I think, if anything, uh, what I, what is a central thing that I'm taking away with me. As we walk away. <laughs> going down the line. Going down the line. Is a, is a, you've, I think, I mean, I can credit you of creating a culture of, I would say, fearlessness. Uh, it's very rare to see fearless farmers. <laughs> We're often <laughs> just, uh, you know, reacting out of fear and farming out of fear and making wine, like, worried at all times. And 
I, I mean, really, that's the, like, this, I was struggling with how to put it into words, but today, it's sort of this morning, I was thinking about that, and it's like, this idea of, like, you can't screw it up. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's part of, you know, we're part of a process that's already happening and just trying to yeah. participate in it in a, in a harmonious way. Um, right, right. It's, it's a very, uh, it's a relief. <laughs> to work oh, in this way yeah <laughs> yes. you know not, not worried all the time not like no. not in fear like um but also you know there's i, I the other complimentary thing i want to say and I, i'll lead to a question hopefully but, <laughs> or you can comment but i feel like um you guys have you especially have this really amazing ability to to observe to listen to where the wine is going and, and this whole idea of, like, terroir, that it's more than just, you know, the fact that we're, you're, you know, we're on a couple feet of topsoil over some limestone. It's more about, like, these vines grow in a certain way every year. They have a certain chemistry. They have a certain flavor. They, if you don't mess with them, they have a voice that you can listen to and learn from and they will make a wine that's beautiful and unique without having to force it into a specific idea of what it should be and that how did you cultivate that that's my question (laughs) um another good question (laughs) which is just my stalling technique to think of my answer to this good question um well, I think, you know, that is how I've always approached wine from, actually from a hospitality side, from my understanding of wine that I appreciated and I enjoyed and wanted to put on our wine list at our restaurant, I, when we had our restaurant, uh, were wines that were, well, certainly spoke of place, and, you know, as I began to learn more about the producers we were working with, um, would visit them, and I learned so much from them about about approaching wine in this way, that it's a natural process, uh, and if we are if we accompany the wine rather than trying to manipulate the wine, the wine will lead us to where we want to go, and it's always unexpected, which is part of the beauty of it all and the fun of it all is that it's like writing it's a surprise Mm -hmm. right you know you may set out with a specific idea of where you're going while you're writing but it then things pop up that surprise you and i find you know working with vines and making wine is very much the same thing and that is something i think that was just really instilled uh in me and us when we would go see these other producers who would share their stories and their wines with us that these wines were made in that way it they led them down the merry path <laughs> of what they wanted to express and who they wanted to be and what they had to say about where they were grown and the people that were growing them and making the wine and it really honestly didn't cross my mind to approach it any other way you know, I'm not, um, I didn't go to enology school. Um, I'm not a UC Davis graduate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually never interned with anyone. Um, you know, but I did have this very rich opportunity to uh, talk and taste with producers from a buyer's perspective. And 
I was able to, you know, as we started this project, to ask a lot of questions of people that we had relationships with already from the restaurant side of things. So I felt like I, I we had our own, we created our own school, um, oh. we with our own faculty <laughs> um, that became invested in us in this project and helping us to figure out that the less is more mm. you know the less you do the more the wine has to say mm -hmm. um, because you're letting the wine speak and you're letting the land speak and you're letting the farming speak um, rather than imposing your ego yeah. on, onto it i don't know if that answered your question at all but no that's great that's great um it seems like the result of that is we've every with every meal, we've had one or two wines. Often we taste wines that we're, we've been picking in or working with that day. And I haven't had a bad wine. And I haven't had a wine that uh, is, uh, is like any other wine I've ever had before. Oh. And, I mean, there's similarities, of course. But, you know, they're all unique and delicious. And... Um, what are we picking now? Like, what, what what do you envision for this, or how we d decide? Mm, yeah, so we're we're picking Frontenac Gris. Uh, we're knee deep in <laughs> um, switchgrass and uh, Daisy Fleabane and a lot of Vetch and um, you know, as we're we typically make three wines from excuse me four wines. No, wait a minute. Three, four. How many wines do we make from this? I guess three. Uh, nope, four. I was right the first time. <laughs> I mean, we make four thousand five hundred and seventy-six wines. So right, right, right. Sometimes I just lose track. Um, so we make four wines from this, and as we're picking, uh, I'm my mind is going click, 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 click. You know, this fruit. Uh, looks like and tastes like it wants to go into this wine this other fruit looks like it wants to go into this wine uh, and we'll make those decisions once we bring all the fruit in and we see what there is and what it wants to be once it starts getting into fermentation so you know we um, ooh, I'm going to say we make five wines from <laughs> front <laughs> <and> <laughs> <laughs> um, we make um, uh, what's uh, a less ripe or typically an earlier pick uh, so that it leans more towards white rather than the rosé. We do a, a sparkling pet mat with that. Um, we can't do that every year because sometimes we just can't catch that window of um, what that optimum level of ripeness is for that particular wine. Um, we sometimes go past it too quickly. Uh, but I think we have an opportunity to make it this year. And we also make a rosé pet mat, which is um, called Chicon Fondue Rosé. Uh, that has always kind of been a calling card wine for uh -huh. us. Um, from pretty early on, we started making it in 2013. Um, we make a ramato called Lupo in Boca, which uh, has a little bit of skin contact, uh, but is really more about oxygen. Mm. Uh, we also make uh, an oxidative. Camila and I have a project together um, that's uh, an oxidative Frontenacri, um, kind of in the, um, it's an Al what we call an Alpine Solera. It's in the, in the style of sherry uh, called Flora that's made with this. Mm -hmm. And then we also do a co-fermentation 
with cider uh, between the Frontenacri and uh, our cider base, and that's called Florine. Um, so we, make, we have an opportunity to make a lot of different things, and depending on what the season gives us, we can go in any or all of those directions. Right. Uh, there may also be wines that we've never made before that the fruit will lead us in that direction. Which is why we have so many labels, <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a firm believer in not trying to necessarily duplicate. We don't have to make the same thing every year. Mm-hmm. Great if we can, and we have wonderful vintage, vintage variation each year within a specific wine. But if that wine just can't be made that year, so be it. You mm-hmm. know, we'll make something else. And, and that's okay, and that's exciting. It yeah. keeps, it, keeps it intriguing. Yeah, that's what I was liking that's my style as well and i mean i like that a lot because as a creative person with adhd (laughs) variety is helpful yes yes it is um but it's also it grows out of nature yes because every year is different every vintage is different right exactly how would you describe this vintage um challenging (laughs) um we haven't had i would say the Vintage most similar to this was probably 2011, uh, which we had a hurricane mm. um, at the end of um, August, August 31st, and that definitely impacted uh, the vineyards and um, the fruit and the wines of that year. Um, all super resilient, um, as everything has been this year, but we've basically had, you know, nonstop either flooding or threat of flooding since end of June, beginning of July. Um, Because of pretty much nonstop rain, right? Nonstop rain. Nonstop rain punctuated by days, beautiful days of very intense heat. Uh, So it's been all over the place in terms of our, um, of, of the growing season. And we started off harvest with a fair amount of rain, and now we're, you know, in a spate of beautiful, hot, dry, sunny weather. So, and that looks like it's going to keep up for the next week, which we're, I think, all hopeful about. Yeah, this is the first non-rainy week since I've been here. (laughs) (laughs) I've lost track. (laughs) So, um, Uh, I know we've had some nice days, but... Yeah, uh, I mean really funny coming from a mediterranean dry climate yeah being like whoa so okay it's just yeah. gonna rain <laughs> like during harvest like yeah that's yeah. all right right and you these, just have to cope with that yeah these vines seem to be okay um yeah, the grapes I mean, seem to be okay you know i think um you know as camila and anna were saying earlier this is this while it has been so challenging what we're seeing coming off the vine uh, is a testament yeah. to to the the resilience of these plants in this place, and that is reassuring mm-hmm. and exciting um, and edifying and all you know all those yeah. things. Yeah, we can move down. Um, so it's. Uh, I mean, I feel I feel excited about be- what we've been picking and what we have the opportunity uh, to make this year. I mean, we had, we also had a late frost in May and, you know, some of the blocks of um, grapes in the vineyards have 
much lower yields, but you know, that's okay. We're, we've got a, a lot of Frontenac Gris, so <laughs> that's going to make up for some of that. Um, but we also have a lot of apples. Uh, we've got a lot of pears um, at the home farm this year, so we're going to be able to make more of those wines. So, you know, at the end of the day, it usually, my experience has been when one thing is not available, something else comes in its stead. Mm. Well, some technical questions. Okay. That, and, <laughs> and based on observations, yeah, um, yeah. You, you're not really, you, there's no real lab in Vermont. <laughs> no. You're not really taking measurements. You're going on taste. Is that right? Pretty um, much? Yeah. I mean, we do, we do use a refractometer and we use a hydrometer. And okay. the refractometer will start taking uh, bricks levels, sugar levels in August. Okay. Uh, and we'll do that every week uh, for a few weeks just so that we can track the, uh, the rate of ripening uh, so that we can kind of zero in on a picking date, a start date. Got it. Uh, right, for right. the start of harvest. And then once we get into, once we know that, we stop. And then we just start tasting. And, you know, each of us, you know, for our, all of our own wines have, I think we have specific ways that we're looking, what we're, we have specific things that we're looking for that the grapes will say to us that it's time to pick for this certain thing. Um, so we kind of wait for that magic moment. And... I guess we've been lucky that it always comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There hasn't been a moment yet where we're like, oh, no, it's not happening. Well, it's almost November. Um, so, yeah, so we, so we use that refractometer and then we use a hydrometer to, to measure sugar for the wines that we uh, bottle as pet nets, just to make sure we're being clear and safe and we know, we know what's what when it goes into the bottle. And can we were talking about it, but without you being close by, and just to go over your spray program for this. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What else is in this vineyard too? So okay, uh, both, yeah. Two questions. Two questions. Um, in this particular vineyard, there is also Marquette, there is La Crescent, and there's Brianna. In addition to the Frontenac Gris, it's four acres. Um, the spray program here uh, is predominantly, uh, we usually start, oh, it's usually at the beginning of June um, that we start and we go to the end of July, um, third or fourth week of July typically. Uh, and we do two sets of sprays for each. It's every other week. And we use homeopathic doses of OMRI certified uh, sulfur and copper, but those are always blended with plant teas as well. And we um, always have nettle tea in the spray. Uh, at the beginning of the season, we use horsetail. Um, that's about 99% silica, uh, and that's good for us in this humid uh, and often hot um, part of the season. And uh, we stop using that typically, you know, mid-June, late June at the longest. Um, we incorporate cowlin clay after the horsetail. 
um, and that is used as both a, a sticking agent. Uh, it's a great inner. It's a great way to help the teas and the minerals uh, come into the plant. Um, it's like an intermediary. Uh, it also has silica in it, so it brings in heat and light into the vineyard, uh, which is something we're always kind of looking for. It also is a great deterrent for things like Japanese beetles, mm. which can be a real issue here. Um, and that's kind of the basic, those are the basics. We have a lot of plants, other plants growing on the vineyard floor within each vineyard. And if there are certain issues that crop up, we'll, we will turn to those plants to make teas. We'll mm. um, try and understand and research and uh, understand how those plants might be useful within the, in the spray program. Um, we also use, um, you know, we do a, a 500 typically in the spring, um, once or twice, it depends on the vineyard and how old the vineyard is and how it's doing. And then we'll also sometimes do that again at the post-harvest, Okay. Uh, again, depending on the vineyard. Okay. I'm going to move down the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, after I grab these grapes, I'm not doing Thank you. <laughs> Anna. Adam. <laughs> she, Deirdre mentioned Chicomfunda Rosé. Yes. Chicomfunde. Yes. Um, A very special wine for me, personally. <laughs> yes. Can you talk about why? Yeah. So that is actually the first Lagaragista wine that I had before I really knew who, who uh they who Lagaragista was and what they were all about. This was kind of at the very beginning of me dipping my toe into the world of uh, wine and specifically natural wine a lot more seriously as well. Um, so I was at uh, in a local wine bar and they, it was one, Chicken Fonde Rosé was one of the things that was being poured by the glass. The bar was completely packed and when I had ordered uh, a half glass, I all that was like left in the bottle was a quarter of a glass and I was like, okay, I'll have this and the person behind the bar said, I'll, I'll be, you know, I'm going to open another bottle, like let me know when you're ready for the next pour um, and I maybe had had like another glass of something in between um but while I was waiting for them to circle back around and give me my other half of a half um but by the time they made it back they're like we actually sold out of everything else because everybody else wanted <laughs> a pour of it but anyway so all that to say I literally had a quarter of a glass of chicken fondue rosé and I my mind hasn't probably never been blown in the same way again um mm. and i was just like what is going on how did this get to be what it is um and my background is in environmental uh science and economics and so i was just kind of like how how do you create this 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 thing from 
how does it become this thing that I love so much? And that's kind of where I started going down the very deep rabbit hole. Well, um, now you've helped make it. Yeah. And <laughs> in, in not that vintage, obviously. No. <laughs> vintages. How, why is it so good? I mean, so something that has been made very apparent to me as I have spent more time uh, on the other end of, you know, the consumption process on the actual, like, production side of things, mm -hmm. um, I've started to realize how bottles of wine like that are an extension of the winemaker themselves and I really feel like those kinds of wines that have a lasting impression on me um, or just even like you know when somebody takes care of is really being a steward to the land and to the vines it's like a piece of art the you know the wine is like the, the heart and soul of the winemaker and to me that's just like something really beautiful that you can't really capture I feel like in a lot of other things that you consume in that way like food yes you can like create a you know a beautiful meal and I guess it's not fair to say because like <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to backtrack on that. Um, <laughs> but it's one of the things that is definitely capable yeah. of, of capturing that, right? Yeah, and I feel like for me specifically, um, yeah, wine is in its own category. Um, and just like what it's able to capture and, and like tell me. And mm. yeah, it really is like a, a piece of art to me. Mm. Um, and that's kind of... You know, so, something that I like about it so much. So that's that's hard to replicate, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, like... <laughs> we, we can't get the recipe to Chico Funday. No. Like. <laughs> no. And it, well, it's interesting, too, because, I mean, even if you did, if there, even if there was a recipe and you tried to recreate it, it would probably taste different. Be, uh, and I say that because... Uh, there have been, you know, a couple of us who have had the same fruit to work with at any one time, have processed it all together, um, and it just, the juice gets, like, divided up between three of us, and we won't do anything differently, necessarily, it's just divided, and we check on it different times, um, but they will all taste very different, right. and they will all kind of have their own signature to them that, like, we can be like, oh, okay, this there's a common thread between like all of Willa's wines or like all of Kimmy's wines um, and you know mine or Deirdre's and it's just the energy and like what you're putting into it which all sounds very like woo woo but I mean we're all a bunch of floating particles bound together by energy so right. why 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 does it why, why wouldn't that make sense <laughs> why wouldn't it be woo woo yeah <laughs> Well, speaking of Cammy's wines, Cammy, I had your Solera style. That was delicious. Thank I'm not you. a huge fan, or haven't been a huge fan of Sherry until I tried your wines. Oh man! And really wanted to try more, and I can't wait for your release, which is coming out. Uh, well, hopefully, if the TTV gets on there, you know, their whatever. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, that will be out into the world uh, in early mid-november okay 
cool. Yep, hoping to pour it at Raw, New York. So it's gonna be huge. I've been waiting five years for this moment. Why, why, I mean, why Solera style for you? Uh, I mean, I know it's not the only thing you do, but why did you want to do a Solera style? Um, so I was at a wine fair. Uh, this was with a friend when I was actually in Lima. In per actually, no, 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 no. Scratch that. Delete, delete. Um, okay, so the first time I tried Sherry was actually <laughs> in Barcelona. It was at a restaurant with a friend, and I remember very first time I tasted it, I was like floored. I, I mean, there was something so, um, I mean, it's very different from like all of the other styles of wines I've had before. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just like drew me in. I wanted to know more. Um, there was this, I don't know, sophistication about it. This, I love the, the nutty kind of savory elements to it. Um, and I don't know, I, I just, I want to learn more about it. So through my internships, I had other kind of examples like Vangean and, um, mm. you know, other oxidative styles of wines. Uh, and when I knew I was coming back to Vermont, um, I really, like, I, I was thinking a lot about, you know, if the grapes that were grown here could make something of that style. Um, and so when I started working with Deirdre in 2018, she asked me, you know, what my, my interests were. And I mentioned Sherry and, um, that's kind of how our project began, um, which started, uh, I guess before my time really, uh, at Lagardisa, but, uh, we went through some of, uh, some vessels, some demijohns and carboys of, 2014 La Crescent and some Marquettes and uh, we I mean they were tasting so great and so interesting after all that time that they really I guess wanted to be you know part of this oxidative project um, and so you know that's that's kind of how that began and uh, when I started making my own cuvées you know I had these uh, small amounts of La Crescent and Frontenac Gris um, and since I didn't really feel like it was worth it to bottle anything since it was you know so little I I decided that's when I would start my like the base mm -hmm. of the Solera and so I've been adding you know small amounts each year. You have two different Soleras right? Uh, yeah so I have two. I have a La Crescent and Frontenac Gris and I split the La Crescents uh, so I uh, got this uh amazing well my distributor jose pastor bless you uh hooked us up with some uh coda 45 uh amontillado barrels two that were 50 years old and two that were 100 years old they look like they came off a pirate ship yeah um he sent them over to us and so um i ended up splitting my la crescent i took half of that and I put it into my barrel and the other half in glass and really why I did that was uh, I mean for the glass I wanted people to have an opportunity to taste you know Vermont the expression of Vermont without the influence of the barrel and then obviously you know the barrel really is just like an ode to the wines that started it all um, and I'm a huge fan of Coda 45 so it was like mm. uh, really That's just an cool. amazing gift to receive some of these barrels um so yeah nice do you have a favorite grape 
for well, three three questions. <laughs> favorite taste, favorite in the vineyard, and then overall favorite. Like of the hybrids. Yeah. <laughs> Any grape, but I would assume. <laughs> uh oh, yeah okay well that narrows it down good. Uh okay wait sorry my favorite grape. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Frontenac Gris. Really? Yeah. Oh. Well, like Anna, the first wine that I well. Chico Fonte Rosé wasn't the first like Argisto wine I tried, but it was the one that really spoke to me. Um, and Frontenac in general, I mean, like just eating it off the vine, it's like incredible. There's so much depth and it's like the color, the acid, the fruit flavors. Um, you know, I'm growing up uh, in between Colombia and Venezuela when I was a child, I just had, you know, grew up with an abundance of tropical fruits, a lot of sour fruit. I love sour. I love acid. And so, uh, Frontenacs have a lot of that, but they also have a lot of amazing, uh, characteristics. Uh, and it's very versatile. Nice. Uh, what were your other questions? <laughs> well, just to, like, is it is it your overall favorite as well, besides the flavor? Like, do you like it in the vineyard? Do you like it? Yeah, yeah, as yeah. The... Okay. Um, yeah, I would say, um, I mean, something that's very appealing about it are the long, loose bunches. So, you know, uh, you don't really have to worry too much about a lot of disease within the cluster because right. there's a lot of, you know, airflow that goes through them. Um, and I mean, no, these grapes are remarkably yeah. healthy, <laughs> given yeah. the year that you guys have had. Well, and I was thinking too, like I was kind of concerned when the frost hit that like Frontenac was not, um, you know, gonna withstand it. I had just planted 200 Frontenac, or I was about to plant 200 Frontenac vines of Frontenac Blanc, so I was kind of like freaking out. But I'm like really, I feel like the Frontenac Gris has. I mean, other than the Brianna, I feel like it has survived what I thought was going to be devastating. I mean, like, there's so much of it, and it looks really great. So I feel pretty um, confident in in growing these. Okay. Um. Yeah. And they're just so versatile. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, they're incredible. How, favorite grape? Ooh, I think... Oh, it might be La Crescent. It, I mean, for the flavor or for everything? For everything. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it has Gewürztraminer in its parentage. Okay. Um, and that is also one of my favorite grapes. So <laughs> I know it gets kind of shit on a lot, but I. Ooh, why? I don't know. I feel like people. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes it because it, it it can be very floral um it can be very aromatic but like you say that like it's a bad thing. i know i don't <laughs> I, that's like you know great for me like give yeah. me you know your perfumey skin contact lines like i yeah. love that um so. and i feel like yeah like crescent i mean it it definitely will shine through and i feel like you won't you'll be like okay this definitely has the crescent in it if you're drinking something but uh i feel like there there's a lot that can be done with it as well i mean there's so much that can be done with all of the hybrid grapes and i feel like we're in an especially unique advantage um because we don't have really preconceived notions of what they should be um <clears throat> 
And mm. so I think we kind of have some built-in, uh, or a lot more flexibility in terms of like what expectations around wines made with hybrid grapes should be like. And so it gives us room to play. Nice. No pressure, right? Yeah. In some ways, yes. Some ways, <laughs> or some ways, no. I mean, well, the only pressure is that everybody that comes after you, you are setting the example for. No pressure. Okay. No pressure. Yeah. No pressure. None at all. How, again, hadn't thought of that. Thank you, Adam. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite grape? I'm an equal opportunist. Yeah, I had a feeling. Yeah, I, I love them all for different reasons. I mean, I love all the ones that we grow. Um, certainly, you know, the Frontenac Gris and the La Crescent, like Kemi and Anna uh, talked about, you know, Marquette is beautiful. I love Frontenac Noir. Um, we have some Frontenac Blanc, which I think is uh, super interesting, and we're starting to work a little bit more with that as a single variety. We had um, that delicious. Oh my gosh, Willa's beautiful um, Frontenac Blanc from David Keck's Fruit. Uh, Honeybee is gorgeous. Um, and that wine really inspired, I think, all of us about Frontenac Blanc. Mm. Um, and we have Saint Croix, which I, I love. Mm. Um, it's a, for us, where we grow it in the mountains, it's been a really easy keeper, uh, juicy, fruity. Um, you know, it's a really nice component in the wines that come out of the mountains, uh, but I'm also really interested in exploring more with that as um, as a blanc to blanc, mm, actually, because we have it's one of the only red fruits that are white is white fleshed yeah. that we oh, can yeah. do it something like that with. Bears, yeah. bears saying on the record that so yeah. many of the red hybrids are tenturier. Yeah, it's yeah. Really, and so yeah, yeah, I have lots of pictures of my hands being yeah. deep, <laughs> exactly. deep magenta exactly. from picking. Exactly. Um, you, you didn't mention Brianna. Do you hate Brianna? Oh my God, no, I forgot about <laughs> Brianna. Brianna, I'm so sorry. We're right we, next we to you. you. Of course, and everybody, you know, that Brianna's comes amazing. here, oh. they fall in love with Brianna. Yeah, you know, I have fallen in love with Brianna. start to pick it, um, she is just really um, charismatic yeah. and kind of captivating. So yeah. yes, we love Brianna. How can yeah. I forget her? And we were bringing up, I'll just put it on the record as well, the sort of the lesser ripe Brianna has this petrol thing that reminded me a lot of Riesling. Yes, yeah. Um, so you could yeah. probably play with yeah. that where you pick it in the in its oh, ripening sure. phase to get yeah. some of that if you wanted that, if you like that, if you yeah. love a Riesling. I don't think Riesling's even in its parentage. It just has no, that in it. it um yeah, it just ha there's something about it when it goes through fermentation mm. that starts to throw those kind of pyrazine Ooh. elements, which is, um, or at least that's been our experience with it. Uh, and we've, I mean, it too is one of those grapes that can do a lot of different things. We make a handful of wines from it. Uh, earlier picks, later picks. Um, we're really gravitating towards later picks with it. Um, it tends to be the last thing that we pick yeah. here in the Champagne Valley. Um, you know, rule of thumb for most people is pick Brianna early. Really? <laughs> yeah, when it's between 16 and 18 bricks, um, huh. because the it's a grape that doesn't um, it doesn't gain more sugar, uh, too much more sugar than that as it um, ripens on the vine. But we find that that's really interesting. It maintains this sugar of say about 22 bricks, and then it starts to accumulate all these other interesting. Um, phenolics when we let it hang longer. 
Plus, it's really sturdy. You know, if we've got rain, if we've got um, other heat, other climactic conditions during harvest, it holds up really well. And yeah. it's the one that can kind of hang in there till the bitter end. Mm. Um, we can, I mean, you can get some sour rot. Um, I mean, in this year, I think anything could get sour rot. Yeah, I think there was like yeah. the best ones, the best condition grapes so far that I've seen were Petite Pearl yeah. and the Frontenacs, yeah. pretty much. Right, right. Petite exactly. Pearl, probably just because of the genetics and front, yeah. I mean, because it's, yeah, I mean, for whatever reason, but the right. Frontenacs because of the loose, long clusters. For sure, for right. sure. I think that that has a big impact. And Brianna is a really tight cluster. But we saw some nice Brianna too, right? I guess we yeah, weren't picking well, it, so we don't know how much yeah, of it was. Yeah, so um, you and I have talked about this before, about how we've uh, moved to doing sections of our Brianna unpruned. Right. Because it elongates the cluster. Right, And right, that right. we get more air passage. So th that we can really hang lo let hang longer, and we don't suffer any sour rot. The things that we, that are, you know, it's more traditional tight bunch that comes from the pruned vines, that we have to watch a little bit more carefully. Um, well, but while we yeah, walk, let's walk the technical question I have for you is, um, why didn't you prune the front and that or the ones that we're with right now? Um, that is also um, kind of based on flavor profile and um, yield. Oh. Uh, and I mean the things that we picked earlier today that I think um, <laughs> you saw were on unpruned vines and a little less ripe. Oh, uh, you're right, right. They, they do ripen later. Um, is this pruned? Uh, this is not pruned. This no, is not? these last three rows are not pruned. Right. So if we want to make this very specific wine uh, that is from a less ripe this is really helpful. Um, it also helps us delay the ripening so that we can manage our schedule, our picking schedule, mm -hmm. um, just logistically. Because mm -hmm. we're a super small winery, a super, super small crew, and we can't really have everything ripening all at once, which is, of course, what it wants to all do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So this is um, a great delaying tactic. Um, we also found this year, which is going to make us think more about this for some of the other varieties, that with the late frost in May, the unpruned vines did much better in terms of oh. loss. So, um, and certainly things that were pruned later. So, right, right. you know, I think there are a host of reasons to, that we find really interesting in employing some unpruned rows within each block. Um, they just give us a little bit more and flexibility. Will, will you prune this again this year and so, maybe switch up some of the rows? Yeah, that's Ro exactly what we'll do. The rotation, do the exactly. rotation, rotate some in, so, rotate some out. Yep, so this year we will definitely prune these rows that were unpruned last year. And, you know, we may do a complete swap or we may just do two rows. You know, we haven't decided that yet. We'll sort of look at our program for the year and see what we want to do for each variety. But, yeah. Um, a couple days ago, I think, am I ready to ask you this question? <laughs> um, well, Am no. I ready to answer this question? <laughs> that may be the better question. Uh, before, before that question, we, we've been talking a lot about like 
who decides what is the right flavor for things you know like I mean uh, and that being a rhetorical question like right like because obviously it's subjective and yet there is this seeming consensus in the way that people talk about wine in our dominant wine culture that Mm -hmm. is very exclusive of you know some of these grapes for example and some of the styles that you might want to explore um, or some of the non-grape fruit that people might want to work with because it does better than grapes in their region. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> like, what, have do you... Uh, I'm trying to remember, like, what we were talking <laughs> about. We but were, I, I mean, how the we solved that, that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we've already answered this. Yeah. So it's like, but I think I'll go back to my own thing because I always like to relate it to my own prejudice. But, like, when I first, you know, the first thing that I worked with was La Crescent and we're in the vineyard and it was just kind of you know I wasn't used to seeing vineyards that look like this like yeah. messy is one way to look at it but it's like you know like but not I mean there's we think uh, of it as natural <laughs> natural right 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 a little uh fovis a little um right then even like right I know yeah, yeah, my no, point being I'm making fun of myself for being judgmental yeah. about it you know but and then being like you know if you did this and that wouldn't you get more you know even ripening or blah 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 and then immediately like your response made me immediately be like oh yeah what like to what end like why am I trying to ripen them all the same like don't your your point being that there's you get complexity you get you know interest in the wine by not having everything be this regimented strict thing because like what are you what are, what are you trying to grow that strictly for like what, right, like what right. is that end game that you right. think you have to reach right. like why mm-hmm. not why not let it why not focus on health and let the flavor be an, an an expression of that health however that health wants you know what what however the vines mm-hmm. best are healthy you yeah. know this being a very good example of of that you know like yeah. we've flea bane up onto the second cordon you know we've got you know sometimes we have little trees that grow up above the vines you know it's uh you're creating this forest edge ecology as you talk about by letting this be that almost in that state of dynamic um succession in the in the ecology yeah yeah right exactly i mean and i think that's um i mean if we look at it from a growing perspective it's you know, I want to look at how nature operates and fermentation as part of that. Uh, nature does not uh, work in a way that everything is going to ripen equally and optimally at the same time, right? There mm-hmm. is variation. Um, so if we're trying to um, encourage that same kind of dynamic within the vineyard, um, that's something that, you, if we observe that in the wild, uh, and in grapes in the wild, then that's something we want to observe also in the dynamic we're trying to create within the vineyard. Uh, but then you also look at how does that taste, right? Does that mm-hmm. work? Right, um, right. Will we enjoy that, you know, right. making wine with grapes that are have variation in ripeness, say? Um, and we found that, you know, we do. And that it does, it does, <laughs> right, right. It does bring this sort of, the, these layers and complexity to the wine um, and an energy and a vibrancy 
Right. Having, you know, deeply ripened grapes along with less ripe fruit, uh, there's a tension. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of the same idea of what led us to make um, our wine Lou Garou with Frontenac Noir the way we make it, right. which is uh, basically an on-the-vine repasso, right. where right. we let a portion of the bunch raisinate, and then the rest of the bunch is what would be typically, you know, fresh ripe fruit. We um, take the whole bunch all together, you know, we harvest it all together, Destem it, foot crush it all together, and you know it does open that fermentation on skins uh, for a period of time. That gives that wine a tension and an energy, and I find having this variation in ripeness does that with all of the wines that we see coming out of these vineyards. That we find exciting and interesting and pleasurable, and um, so we're we're actually going for that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, rather than saying like, ooh, okay, let's create a scenario in which we have a lot of control and we can manage the ripeness equally in each bunch. Um, it just doesn't seem as interesting at yeah. this juncture. It's also a lot more work for what end. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. like what yeah. do you actually get for all that extra, you know, exactly. OCD <laughs> behavior, yeah, you know? Um, right. Yeah, it's, uh, and, right, like really just tying the vines onto, an, uh, you know, something that they, yeah, it's, I think. They're arbitrary. These decisions are arbitrary. Mosquito in your forehead. <laughs> I wasn't just smacking That you. was also <laughs> arbitrary. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the, I mean, the macro of that is uh, the way that hybrids are, of course, seen, I think, in the, t in the taste, in the, in the, in the, in the realm of taste in, in wine, mm -hmm. in some circles, in many non-hybrid circles, <laughs> um, in the sense that they're, I mean, I, I like the metaphor, I guess is what I'm saying. What you're saying, the, the farming metaphor, the imitating nature metaphor, I wish applied and want to apply to all wine where it's, you know, you're looking at the natural system, how it's growing, the way, letting it grow the way it wants to grow. In this case, the, nothing but these kind of grapes could grow here and oh, to be true. made yes. wine. Yes. And, and so, like, this is clearly an expression of this this area you know that what yeah. what is possible what can speak to this place yeah um in the same way that you know you're not trying to control by forcing vinifera to grow here you know right, right? like right. You're not, well and uh, we're not trying to control we're not trying to make marquette taste like cabernet sauvignon right right and fit into a box a preconceived box of you know what what is wine what is good wine what is elegant elevated wine yeah um you know that would be that's futile because that will never you know marquette is never going to taste like cabernet sauvignon right. um and it's going to taste like marquette which i'm thankful for <laughs> right yeah um but it's you know, no, I mean, something we've talked about before, too, is this idea of, you know, the arbitrariness of taste and how, you know, how did we get to a place of 
oh, wine should taste this way. And, you know, somewhere along the line, people were like, oh, hybrids are weird. Hybrids right, taste right. weird. Um, they've got a flavor, you know, which drives me insane, the comment foxy. Right. Because I don't really understand what that means. Right. Uh, to me, it sounds like that should be animalistic. But it's that isn't what I get from these grapes. No, um, no. You know, sometimes they taste like grapes. Yeah, they you know, they or, have like a grape flavoring. Right, right, and maybe maybe that's what people mean by foxy. Uh, I I don't know, but it's like why why doesn't it just taste like what it is? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's either well made or it's not. It's well grown or it's not. And we use that as the deciding factor, right? You know, and and is it is it sound? Is it balanced? Is it you know? We can look at things like that. Yeah. Um, is it flawed? You know, I think we can probably all agree on some basic ideas of what a flaw is. Right. Not everything, <laughs> but but some things. Um, you know, so if we just are shifting our focus and saying, well, this is what wine tastes like from this place without having, um, I don't know, these preconceived notions of, you know, right. oh, it has to, good wine is always Bordeaux or Burgundy or, right. you know, something from the Jura or, you know, whatever these things are that we right, right. have, um, you know, Chianti, you know, Nebbiolo. Um, and I learned a lot from, you know, being a student of Italian wine that regional wine is what is so important in Italy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, it, it has to be from that region to go with the food, and that is what tastes good. Mm. Oh, oh, we have a little mouse somewhere. Oh, hey guys, where? don't you run away? Yeah, I don't know why you're just squeaking. You could run. No, interesting. Oh, okay. Maybe I just wanted to interject here um, that even though we were talking about foxiness and this flavor in hybrid grapes. It's really important that you should understand, if you aren't familiar working with hybrids, that most of these grapes, or many of the gra these hybrid grapes, don't have that flavor. In fact, of the grapes that we are working with in this vineyard and uh, pretty much all of the vineyards that we've worked with, that I've worked with in the past three weeks, only the Brianna has a bit of that flavor that has been classified as foxy and it's also one of our favorite grapes so there you go but literally none of the other ones all the ones that we've been talking about the ones that we're picking in as we're recording this have no trace of that foxy flavor so part of that idea that all hybrids are foxy is just something that's wrong and comes from a earlier time or just ignorance and I wanted to make that clear. Well, well didn't see okay. Him. <laughs> was, um, we set our thing right down on their house. house. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, um, so we were talking about pla a place like in Italy, Italy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. regional varieties and how it's really just about what comes from that place. It's not like, oh, I mean, certainly there was a um, a moment in Italian wine history fairly recently where it was like, oh, everything has to be the international variety. 
Right. We all want to be growing Syrah and Cabernet and right. Chardonnay because that's what's going to sell. Blah 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 blah. Right. But you know, not every region did that. Not every region did that, and fortunately, it's gone back to being about the regional grapes from the regions, and that is what the experience of that culture and cuisine mm-hmm. and those wines are about. Yeah. Um, so it's like I, I think we should be treating Vermont in the same way. And hybrids grown wherever they grow well should be treated in that way. They just happen to be the varieties grown in that place. And they taste like they taste from that place. It's not about the variety. Right. It's like people get so hung up on what's the variety. Yeah. It's really about like what's the biome. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. talk about what grows in the vineyard with the variety. Yeah. What's the soil? What's the farming? Uh, that's what it's about, and yeah. about the people, yeah. you know, who are doing the work. Yeah, as as Anna was saying, that yeah. you can taste that. Um, I don't think I was complimentary enough about your wine. The first wine I had was that first day of picking La Crescent and drinking um, Vino Yanku. Oh, we had the Vino Yanku, which right? Very sad that that won't be happening know, this year. I know. But I'm not the only person. I've heard multiple people. <laughs> go, oh no. Oh no, I know. Um, it's a really special wine. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, could you describe it? It's just because um, I, I don't, yeah, I'm only. It's <laughs> a, you know, it's a very classically made um, skin contact white. Um, we Which makes it sound so simple, but it also had oxidative elements to it, I think for me, but uh-huh, with, with all yeah. the fruit as well. Yep. Um, um, there was a depth to it that was well I think La Crescent is primed for it's you know, got that. having skin contact you know, yeah skin oh it's such a beautiful yeah um, wine I think it just really uh, it loves it loves it because it has you know it has these beautiful tea tannins um, mm. it's got stone fruit it's got citrus like in the Vino Yanku you get these deep orange and blood orange citrus elements, um, apricot, uh, what's the other one I was thinking of, that's, um, peach, Mm. uh, and apricot for stone fruit, it's got acidity, um, you know, so we, we pick it at the moment where we think the fruit is saying all of those things, it has salinity, it has a lot of salinity, Mm. uh, and then it simply... It, I mean, we use a lot of oxygen in the winemaking. It gets distemmed, it gets foot crushed. It's an open vat fermentation uh, until that fermentation is done, generally. And then some of it goes into a clay amphora made with clay from the Champlain Valley Basin. And uh, it gets blended with uh, the other part, which may be you know, in flex tank, maybe in glass demijohn, the combination thereof. And it typically takes, you know, an hour, uh, an hour, a year. <laughs> I wish it was only an hour. Wish I could be making it every That's day. That's a cash cow. Yeah, we'll exactly. Make... <laughs> um, a year of that kind of elevage, and then it goes into bottle for at least another year. Mm-hmm. And then um, we sort of wait till it's ready to share. And it is simple. Mm. It is simple, but it's the... Well, we don't need to make the winemaking complicated in order to have a complex wine. Yeah. 
No, it's it's lovely and should be tried by all. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, all of them. I mean, I, yeah. I'm glad you had a big pear year this year, too, after that beginning of memory yeah, cider yeah, last night. I'm excited about the pears this year. <laughs> Anna, um, I love what you said about a matriarchy. That is a cool idea, and I hadn't framed Vermont in that way, but I've been saying, like, you know, Deirdre has been sort of mentoring a whole new generation of people in Vermont, and I call it, like, fine natural wine, but you're right, like, there is this element of, um, I, I joke, a coven. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, you're not the only person who <laughs> jokes about that. <laughs> um, but, um, like, I don't know, I... I want you to say more about that. That's really interesting. I mean, it's it's really interesting. So I kind of, you know, started, I moved to Vermont in 2017. Um, I grew, grew up in New Jersey. Um, and making wine was never anything that crossed my mind as a possibility. Um, I've always like really enjoyed it. Um, you know, my dad has always really been into wine, um, but it's kind of like the classic. I like, you know, a big dry red. Give me a Malbec, and uh, yeah. that's kind of how I started off my journey in wine as well. Um, you know, kind of leading up to that faded Chiconfonde rosé quarter of a glass pour and then I was just like all right I I gotta figure out how to do this um but I yeah lucky enough so starting in 2019 was when I started helping out uh here at La Gargista with Harvest and gradually just kind of like being more involved in any way I could um, and, you know, Deirdre and Caleb being very encouraging of that. Um, and since then, I feel like the amount of people I've seen or come through to either help harvest um, or having known or tried Lagaragista wines um, and coming to this place, like whether it's you know, they happened to be visiting in Vermont and do a curbside bottle pickup, or we had a Tavernetta pop-up event. The amount of people I've seen who are like, okay, I, I'm going to move to Vermont. <laughs> um, and people who have literally, you know, like up and left, you know, all different places across the country to be like, I want to be in Vermont because of the experience I've had here and now I also want to make wine mm. um, which a lot of those people you are women oh, are, sorry. I mean like <laughs> I wish would go on <laughs> no the, we, we, it's, it's really kind of amazing how much like the community is growing and I feel like so much of that is you know because, a direct you know result of Deirdre and Caleb and Cami and how I don't know I feel like this is for this is how they've made me feel and I feel like I I'm, I'm probably not the only one who has been made to feel this way 
but like anything is possible. Um, and so I, you know, was able to finally like quit my corporate job and take the plunge and into the great unknown um, mm. and start making my own wine. But I think especially like wine historically being very kind of like like oh like especially a lot of a lot of manual labor being involved in the farming too it's like oh uh, from what Cammie's told me of her plastic harvest experiences like sometimes it can be like oh like you don't don't lift that like I'll lift that for you because you know you're you're a woman but it's very very empowering um to be here and do everything that we're doing um whether or not I've realized it in the moment or only upon, you know, further reflection like I'm doing in this conversation now, <laughs> but, but yeah, it is. Getting me all, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, emotional, <laughs> hearing it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Kimmy, um, <clears throat> have you ever been asked a question that you didn't answer the way you wanted and wish you'd answered differently in the, after you thought about it? Uh, and what was that question and what would you have said? Oh my god. <laughs> is this what we were talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't, but didn't you just ask me that well, question? Didn't you have any other questions? <laughs> and did you like the way you answered it this time? Oh god, now I am like, <laughs> it's, it's, my mind is blank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know what, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and remember exactly what I wanted to say, so... Uh, do you remember? So, make sure you silence your phone. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that late night call. Well, or when it comes out, and you'll be like, damn it, I said what? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the hybrid question that you asked me, that was something that I yeah. wish I had had more time to think about. Um, and it's always, like, to talk, like, to tell... Like, tell us about your journey or your story. Like, that's I. That's something that I always... You want to get more polished it? Yeah, because I just... I'm like, where do I even begin? And then it's just me blabbing and <laughs> bouncing between <laughs> decades and countries. And then I, I feel like I'm lost. And so if I'm lost, then you're lost. I'm well, sure. <laughs> well, I asked Deirdre, but I'll, I'll ask you in a sort of different way. Like, what, you know what you hope that I take away from this, but in the sense of like, what do you feel like are the most important things that you've been learning since you got here? Mm. Since you started this journey? Um, well, really, you know, to Anna's point, it's, uh, it's been a journey of em empowerment and believing in, you know, myself. Uh, and that, you know, that started with my first Harvest internship. Shout out to Chantal for them of Flowers Vineyard and Winery. Nice. Love you. Um, yeah, no, she, like, just, I've actually, almost all of my Harvest internships were with female winemakers. And um, yeah, that was, like, a really important part of the journey for me and uh, has, you know, been a huge part of the journey here um and you know when I came back to Vermont to work with Deirdre and Caleb I 
I wasn't really planning on making my own wine and that was kind of the belief that I like couldn't do it and I think that that was you know fed to me by people who really didn't believe that you could make wine unless you went to college or were like good at chemistry and all that stuff and so since I was not and didn't go I I basically was like well I'll just work for someone and you know figure it out but when I started working with them um they you know encouraged me to make my own cuvee and I was really <laughs> hesitant to do it because uh, I was kind of like you know talking down to myself about it <laughs> oh Anna left I was good <laughs> Caleb are you listening to something sort of um can you talk about your role here Sure. <laughs> what is my role here? <laughs> well, That's a great I question. Actually, <laughs> I, I actually was going to say that none of this would be happening if Caleb wasn't here. Uh, he is the um, keystone. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come back. Come back. I gotta get a log. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go ahead. I'll be right back. Right we'll, back. we'll talk Don't about you while you're gone. Back, but I, oh, but I did want to just acknowledge, I wanted to acknowledge that he is pretty much the keystone um, to making this whole operation work. All of these um, beautiful... If, if this whole thing were a restaurant, I'd be the dishwasher. <laughs> the dishwasher. Well, because if the dishwasher walks out, the whole thing comes to a screeching right, halt. Right, right. There you go. <laughs> Yes. Um, so anyway, he can he can finish answering his own question. But I just wanted to say we love him and acknowledge how much he does to make this whole thing happen. He works with so many women all the time, and he is still here to tell the tale. So that makes him a very strong man. <laughs> um, well, the specific thing I was going to talk about was... How instrumental were you in getting these squawkers? And by the squawkers, uh, they're off right now, right? I haven't been hearing anything. Uh, we'll see. They might be on a pause, or we may need to go reboot it. Yeah, like... But we're a little bit far, farther away, and we might not be hearing it. Oh, there, there it are. is. There okay. it comes. Um, yeah, after putting nuts on for a couple of years and pulling dead bird carcasses out after harvest uh, when we would take pick the nests up to put them away. Um, I reached a point where I just knew that I didn't want to I didn't want to deter birds in that way mm. from the crop. Um, it just, it really put me in a depressed state mm. to do that. Um, and, uh, I, the, there were already squawkers, um, there was already a squawker in place in the other vineyard, um, and I researched those some more, and we decided to try those out um you know trying to balance all the factors like what what's the the cost the time and the effort of 
putting nets on and taking them off again. Right. Um, it's a lot of time. Um, of course, as a piece of equipment, the squawkers have a price, but I thought that uh, the trade-off was a valuable one. Mm. And um, I think there was something in my tone of voice when I said, I'm not doing this anymore with the nets. Mm-hmm. Um, that was heard. Deirdre heard. Mm. And she's like, okay, let's do it another way. Um, no, I mean, I've, you know, personally, we, we've seen there is some bird loss when you get further to the end of the row at that end. Yeah. This year. This year. This year. Last some, year, not some, so much? Some years we don't see any. Oh. I mean, if we do, it's like absolutely negligible. Right on. Um, so. Okay. I am a believer. In the oh, fantastic. Efficacy of the squawkers. Yeah. Nice. Go ahead. Well, no, I guess, I mean, that sacrifice, if, if we want to look at it that way, seems worth it to me. Does that, is that uh -huh. what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, I would rather plant more vines than install nets. Mm. Plant more vines and, and commit to losing more fruit, um, but hopefully, you know, st still getting more fruit just by virtue of having more vines um, and just hope that the birds won't take all of all the new fruit. Um, so that's my thought on it. Love it. You're making your first wine this year? <laughs> In a manner of speaking, yes. What is it? Insofar as there's a, a, a three gallon carboy with a piece of tape and my name on it. <laughs> Uh, and it's what's in that carboy? It's, it's Frontenac Gris. Oh, um, here we are. Speak of whether the devil. whether it will remain 100% Frontenac Gris remains to be seen. Uh, but I plan to sparkle it. Oh, okay. And drink it all yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> if I get my way. <laughs> but um, I'm not used to that. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the trick is positioning positioning yourself so that when you don't get your way, quote unquote, what you get is still excellent. Mmm. Yeah. <laughs> um What is your role here, Caleb? <laughs> I I just wanted to say you may be the dish boy, but you you are also the chef of of all of our meals. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that were amazing. Of course, and have been and yeah. continue to be, and do make it make it this special occasion when you come out to help this whole process happen. Uh, well, thanks. Um, Which ties into your role, I think. <laughs> it does. It, it does perfectly because I I do see. Uh, one of my most important roles is that of providing context of food for the wine. Um, because I really believe that um, wine, first and foremost, is an expression of food culture. Mm. And 
we are in uh, a unique time and place to be to help establish a new wine culture in a place with a pre-existing food culture right Vermont in particular right right I think they're just my approach to wine is uh, is um, trying to exploring what wine how wine is a cultural expression and how can we um, support that expression with food and you know it's a natural offshoot of my role as the chef in our restaurant to continue in that way in the winery um, it's and it's and I think another another important part of our philosophy and our approach to the work is choices about what we want our work life to be like. Mm. Um, well, that is uh, something I've also noticed as really healthy and sane and beautiful. Not just not just avoiding the bad, but incorporating like the way Deirdre runs out and picks flowers for every meal and like you know when we arrived at the the house you know she quickly put flowers in my bedroom before I could even get in there yeah like fresh yeah. flowers and yeah that I mean just the little things like that but like every meal looks like a little moment of beauty rather than just something that we did to fuel our our work efforts right right yep well you 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 mentioned the, the you mentioned the role of beauty and we Deirdre and I both think that that is um, important to consider and personally I feel that the role of beauty in one's daily life is by and large across our society underappreciated, overlooked, mm. and uh, undervalued. I tend to agree very strongly. I, I mean, even just in the way that these things are growing up into the canopy, um, they're flowering plants. Like, they add this, like, beautiful contrast to the grapes and the grape leaves. You have, you have these beautiful spiders you have these have beautiful daisy flea banes you have you know these little purple flowers that pop up milkweed yeah just a whole assortment the, the veg like there's a texture and a color and aesthetic element to it that i think is easy to see and hard to overlook as long as you aren't judgmental about it like i was saying like i was you know or, or I think right. you, you could be. Tend, you could. Well, that'll be a little bit too late for us. Yeah. Be, yeah. If you had a pre, if you had a preconceived idea of how it should be. Yeah. You might. And yet, I just see beauty now. 
which is lovely. Well, don't get ahead, you know, that's what um, Yeah, well, thanks for covering that topic with me because I wanted to make sure that your genuine question didn't just get, get answered with uh, a, uh, <laughs> uh, a breezy joke. Got it. <laughs> but that's also a good part of your role, the breezy jokes. Yeah. <laughs> At times. Caleb keeps right. us laughing and well said and sane. <laughs> well said. Oh my gosh. Yeah, there's nothing like coming in from a cold night in the winery when you're oh. just like sticky and just like like soaked from like cleaning so much and then there is a warm meal and some nice wine waiting for you. Oh my god. Yeah. There is nothing better. Oh yeah, and of course cozy pants. Oh yeah. <laughs> mandatory oh, mandatory yeah. dinner Taylor, attire. One of the biggest supporters of the cozy pants. <laughs> Yeah. Which are they all men's on the It's not just a movement, it's a way of life. Right, like something comfortable. These are hard pants. Yeah. These come off as soon as we are in It's like the equivalent of taking your bra off. Yeah, okay. I get that. I love that. Yeah. It's like taking off the bra bottoms. Exactly. Oh, it will. It's like taking your bra off. Could you say your name? Hi, I'm Emma. Could you say your name? Hi, I'm Louise. The tireless. The tireless Louise. Could you say your name? Hi, I'm Sadie. Well, a question for you that I prepped you for two days ago. Yeah. Why do you care about this kind of farming? Oh. Uh, <laughs> that question. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, first I think it comes down to um, essentially a moral obligation, you mm. know, which we talked about. It's, yeah. a, um, it's the right thing to do. You right, know, and like, of course the question is like, how, how do you come up with that's the right thing to do? Um, and I think it's being, oh, being taught and being, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of both nature and nurture, mm. you know, what we experience, what we observe, what we're taught about the environment that we live in and seeing, you know, not only the magic and wonder of it all and being exposed to that, but also seeing the things that are being done to it and the negative things you know what you know big ag is doing to mm. so you know when you can see uh, a burnt field you know from glyphosate not mm. because it's been burned but because the chemical they've put on the soil and the floor excuse me the flora on the soil um, is burned from that and you see that next to a green, bright, vibrant greenfield that hasn't had that, you know, that you begin to draw conclusions. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, um, I do. <laughs> yeah, um, Maybe but so. I think it's just like, you know, it's about what's well, about things that are bigger than us, mm. um, and it's about being human. It's not just about being a human, I mean it is about being a human within the natural world, 
but it's about being human with other humans and how do we survive together you know on this planet um, and how do we take care of this planet um, not for us so much now but for the future um, so I mean those are like things that I think are important yeah about why why to do it this way and that's from a you know that's from an environmental ecological perspective from a creative perspective I think you know farming in this way um, the wines the wines are more um, the wines are more the wines tell more they say more and that was my experience as a wine buyer and there was a moment when I realized that the wines on my wine list were 100% biodynamic without me having sought that out. Without that being a criteria. Without that being a criteria at the time. And wow. This is before we were really talking about natural wine and biodynamics and wow. organic. And um, I was like, what's up with this? Right. Why am I attracted to all these wines? And... Um, you know, I think Caleb and I both felt that there, A, okay, that said something to us mm-hmm. and about the way we wanted to work with the land that we had the privilege of being on. Um, but it was also this imperative of like, why, why would we do it any other way? You know, if we right. know that, if we have that knowledge now that there's a difference mm-hmm. um, not only in um, how it affects the landscape we live in but the, the people um, and it affects the craft of it why would we do it any other way mm-hmm. uh, it, I mean it just doesn't make any sense yeah. when you get to that place in the yeah. thinking yeah. um, so I guess that's what you know that's why um I mean, you know, we had, we started um, farming for the restaurant, vegetables for the restaurant menu, and Caleb's mother is a wonderful master gardener, and, you know, she had a huge influence on us, you know, Mm. in terms of education and thought of farming in this way, you know, it was, so it was like, again, that's the way you do it, and why would you do it any other way? Why would you use chemicals? Why would you put that in your body? Why would you put that in the soil? Mm. Um, why would you treat the land any differently than you would your body? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like basic ideas like that. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are immersed literally up to our <laughs> chins <laughs> yes. Yes. in this. Yeah. And some, yeah. some of us over our chins <laughs> yeah. in this land. I would hate for it to be any other way, yeah. personally. Um, yeah, me too. Because I like immersing myself. <laughs> Anna, what's next in your journey? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I'll, I mean, kind of like, I think I said this to you, your first week you were here, maybe? Uh-huh. Like, we oh, we were picking the Frontenac Noir in West Addison. Um, and I think what's next for me is just still continuing to learn more i mean what do you want to learn uh well specifically something i'm really interested in that i can also apply to like what we're doing is uh more specific like biodynamic practices like actually creating like you know the compost for the compost spray and things like that um and just really 
but also I'm very curious to start identifying any kind of correlations um, with planetary transits mm-hmm. to what's going on in the vineyard as well as the fermentations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, for example, just this morning, there is a full moon tomorrow and I were walking through the rows and all of these huge orb weavers are all building new webs, but their webs look so pristine in a way that they haven't really the rest of like the season I feel like and so I'm like what is going on here oh Mm. full moon and then we're entering like the eclipse cycle and I'm like oh what is going on there but last year all of our the majority of our fermentations took like a really really long time for this sugar to drop but Uh Mercury and Mars were retrograde for you know a huge portion of that time and so it's just like I mean understanding like correlations like that and then being able to use that to just better plan and account for things but it's again just observing you know natural cycles and correlations not necessarily causations but then how do you get that to all work together like Mm. so any um yeah any astrological projections for this vintage (sighs) Ooh. No, well, uh, Uranus (laughs) has been in Taurus, and it will continue to be there, I think, until, like, 20... It's got got a little bit of ways to go. Um, And Uranus is the planet of, kind of, disruption, um, uh, instability, and happening in Venusian Earth sign Taurus, which is all about, you know, the natural world, pretty much. it makes sense to me that we have had a lot of tumultuous, destabilizing, sudden uh, weather events that have impacted our very Venusian <laughs> uh, product that we put out. Right. Uh, but also, I mean, just like, yeah, the work that we do on a general basis. Taurus is, I mean, it's also, you know, like head down. How do we get through this? And... How do we work with disruption? How do we work with disruption? Exactly as Cammie said. <laughs> um, so we still have more of that. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mostly just, okay, yeah, how do you work with disruption? Cammie, <laughs> uh, the question I have for you is, can you sort of describe this time of day that we're in right now and what it's like being here? Mm, well, this is, I guess, it's the golden hour. Feels like it. it feels like it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's that time of day where we're like, you know, we've been picking all day. Things are starting to slow down a little bit. Um, crickets. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, yeah. Mosquitoes. I mean, the mosquitoes have been ridiculous. Bug wild all day, <laughs> and so they're just still hanging around. Um, I don't know. It's like if you're quiet, you can hear the crickets. You can hear some birds. There's a lot of bees buzzing away on the daisy flea bane um and yeah i mean oh, there's oh, a little something. there's a mouse i think or a bird um but yeah it's like we're getting to that the the slow down part of the day what does this mean to you to be able to do this as your job oh man i love it um it's 
challenging in many ways, um, but I wouldn't want to do anything else. I mean, I get to be outside. I get to work with plants. <clears throat> I get to make wine, which, you know, helps me tap into my creativity. Um, and I get to be part of a process. You know, I get to see it from beginning to end and then start it over again and take what I learned, apply it. Um, and usually, you know, at this time of the year, it's like I've spent all the growing season, you know, panicking and crying. And then at the end of the season, you're like, oh, yeah, right. Plants are resilient. And, you know, uh, it's all going to be all right. And I learned a lot and uh, just have to remember that I just really need to trust in the power of plants and nature and trust that I am a part of that. Love that. As I re-listen to this, I am overwhelmed with gratitude for my hosts and my colleagues over the past three weeks. Caleb and Deirdre, Anna and Cammie, thank you so much. And for all of you who made it through this <laughs> epically long episode, may you have a beautiful harvest and enjoy every minute of it and not take it for granted. <laughs>